You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 55 of the Common Descent Podcast, the saddest episode ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's gonna it's gonna get a little depressing. As is our tradition, every episode that ends in a number five is an extinction episode. And in the past we have focused mostly on specific extinctions from Earth history. This episode, we are sp- focusing on a specific extinction from Earth's present. Indeed. We are talking about what is sometimes called the Holocene extinction, what has also been dubbed the Anthropocene extinction, more on that later, what is sometimes simply known as the biodiversity crisis, but which has been very catchily titled the sixth extinction. Yeah, and that one just is so ominous. It is, in reference to the Big Five, the Big Five mass extinctions, which we've talked about before, the five biggest extinction events in the history of animal life on planet Earth, at least to our knowledge, the current biodiversity decline on our planet has been colloquially come to be referred to as the sixth extinction. We live in a time where we are seeing animals and plants and other and other organisms going extinct at a rate that is unprecedented in human history and potentially almost unprecedented in history period yeah so buckle in for a for a, a <laughs> so, fun time here again on your, the common ascent podcast get your your tissues ready buckle in put on your existential crisis hat <laughs> <laughs> get ready for a conversation. We're going to talk about what's happening, sort of what sort of science has been done to help us understand exactly what's going on today. What, as we always do, what the causes are. That's going to be the depressing part. And, of course, we will end with a discussion of what this means. What does it mean and what do we do and where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode should be interesting, if not fun. <laughs> it should at least... Uh, hopefully be enlightening yeah there are still a lot of interesting and complex topics to discuss here yeah only some of it is sad and depressing this episode was requested this topic uh by on twitter by both mallory and josh so thanks for that yeah yeah thanks Thanks a lot. Actually, I'm very excited to do this episode topic. It's, I've been waiting for the opportunity to do this one. This this one is going to be very interesting. It's just, as to be expected, since it's the only one within our history, it's a, it's a little closer to home. Oh, yeah, a little. That's <laughs> all uh, in, and, in and out and all around. Before we get into the topic, however, let's do some announcements, starting with our now traditional patron shout-out. As some of you know, we have a Patreon, and if you join our Patreon and you patronize us at a certain level, you get a shout-out on the podcast. And this time, we are uh, welcoming to the patronage, to the Baskin Coil, which is has become my I like official... I think, I think that's the official. I think that's the official uh, 
title for the Common Descent listeners. I like it. The Baskin Coil. I like it. It sounds like a tavern. <laughs> it does. It really does. That's I well, think that's why I like it. <laughs> Welcome, Harry, Matthew, and and I I guessed how to pronounce this name when it showed up on the Q and A. And this person has not told us told me that I'm wrong. <laughs> so Valkyria. Welcome. Welcome all three. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, you too could be a patron and have your name shouted, uh, hopefully correctly pronounced on the podcast. And indeed, we have a couple of announcements specifically regarding our Patreon. Indeed, yes, we do. As the month of February wraps up, we are going to be making a couple of changes to the, the things that are offered on Patreon. Not removing things, but adding them. So very quickly, uh, if you are a patron at the family level or higher, that is $5 a month or up, you have the opportunity to submit questions to be answered occasionally on the podcast. Some of our podcast episodes end with a patron question. Mm -hmm. Up until now, it's kind of been a little confusing because people will send us questions and it's not super clear if it is this a patron question or are you just trying to talk to us. And that's our fault. So you know what we're going to do is put a submission form. Yes. Streamline it. If you are on Patreon and you are at one of the higher levels and you can do a patron question, you will see a post on the feed and you should get a message with a link to a question submission form specifically for patron questions. So start sending us your questions there for us to talk about on the podcast. Also, if you are a patron at the genus level or higher, that is $2 a month or up, we are adding a new type of bonus audio content. Mm-hmm. So most of our bonus audio content has been after chat, which is just us messing around for a little while. But every month, every episode, we choose news to discuss. And we limit ourselves to four pieces of news per episode, which means that sometimes we skip some interesting news. Really good stuff has to go slip through the cracks from time to time just due to what's going on that month. So at the end of February, we are going to record and post our first bonus news discussion. Yeah. It's not going to be super streamlined, probably. It's just <laughs> going to be us sort of extra chatting. But if you really like the news and you're a patron and you want to hear us talk about a few extra pieces, give it a listen. And hey, if you're not a patron, now's a great time because we're adding some cool Yeah, because we just heard recently there's some bonus stuff coming up soon. So get in on it. You should check it out. Uh, now's the time. Get in on the ground floor. Get it while it's hot. Speaking of exciting new things, something that is not exclusively patron and Patreon, uh, but for everybody... This is, this is news that has been a long time coming because we keep talking about it and now we are doing it. In March, we will be opening an official online Common Descent store for merchandise. Yes. If you follow us on the social medias, you've seen us post the pictures of us with our t-shirts, our Common Descent t-shirts. People have been asking, when will I be able to buy one? The answer is March. Yep. So more details when they come, when it's officially up, but keep an eye out because that's a thing that's happening. So if you want to support us by uh picking up some of our paraphernalia telling your friends about us uh, showing our logo in everybody's face please do you will be able to do that absolutely i think that's all the announcements is that all the announcements that's all i had to announce cool if it seems (laughs) like i'm rushing it's because my notes for this episode are extensive but before we get to that discussion we talk about news Oh, yeah. Every episode, we pick some news from the world of paleontology and evolution and life science and earth history to discuss on the podcast to get us started, keep us all updated with what's going on in the news. Will, what news have you brought to news 
today. I bring as tribute news of a <laughs> recently formed island that already has formations of an ecosystem on it. <gasps> That's not paleontology. No, but it is awesome because it teaches us a lot about island biogeography and how island ecosystems can form and the timetable for an island ecosystem to form. Tell me more. So this bit of news is from a study done by the Sea Education Association along with NASA with Rachel Scudder as the chief scientist and the article we'll be linking to is in BBC News. This is about an island that formed in 2014 when a volcano erupted in the Tonga region of the Pacific Ocean, east of Australia. This area is made up of lots of islands, 170 islands in the Tonga area. So bunches of islands popping up from volcanism. That's how islands are very commonly formed. And as this volcanic ash settled, it reacted with the water and solidified to form this island. So if you look up pictures and if you look up the article, you'll see it's very rough formed because it has not been shaped into a nice, you know, normal landy shape. It's still very angular and weird. Cool. The island has been nicknamed Hunga Tonga Hunga Haepe because those are the two islands it's in between. Oh, interesting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very technical. Yes. So (laughs) it doesn't have its own name yet, but this is a very new island. But it is actually a fairly long-lived island for the way it was formed. Typically, islands like this, these ash islands, only last for like a few months. Hmm. They they form and then they erode and disintegrate. Right. Cool, because they're just loosely consolidated ash. Absolutely. The article made the point that this is one of only three islands to emerge in the last 150 years that has lasted longer than just a few months. Wow. So this is not common for it the last years. And the first observation said that it could last for potentially decades. Wow. They don't expect it to be permanent, permanent. But this could last a while. Evidently, something about the way the ash solidified made it particularly more stable. And they're they're not quite sure exactly what properties has given it this at least four-year-long, you know, going into five-year-long life. Interesting. The island, just to give you an idea of what it, the land looks like, it is covered in light, as they put it, sticky clay-like mud, to which the researchers are unsure of how that got there and why there's clay-like mud on it. <laughs> That's kind of a weird feature, so they're not sure exactly what caused that to form on this island. But what is interesting is that in this time, there are already plants and birds nesting on the island. Cool. There are, as they said, purple flowered plants and sooty terns and barn owls found making a home on this island in less than five years. Fascinating. This is insight into how ecosystems like this could form. And where we get into some of the paleo aspects is why NASA was involved. Oh. This island may actually give insights into... Mars's past because when looking at the surface of Mars there are some structures that show similar erosion patterns to this open ocean seamount island Oh, that may have themselves been 
early Mars islands, Martian islands. So comparing, looking at this island, how does a newly formed island look? And what sign, you know, what things can we look for might give us patterns to look for similar structures on Mars, which would give definite evidence of ocean island geological activity. Cool. So, yeah. This also makes me think about, so we've talked about dispersal and we've mm-hmm. talked about island evolution several times. I, episode four was all about island evolution. Yeah. Episode 40, we talked about Madagascar and how it was populated. And just last episode, 54, we talked about Alfred Russell Wallace mm-hmm. and how he did sort of work on islands. Episode 28, we talked about Darwin and how he discovered, you know, l- looking at islands, found all these cool evolutionary insights. Seeing how new species, new to the area, arrive at and colonize islands is a fascinating evolutionary case study and if this thing lasts for a decade like how cool will it be to have 10 years of data on how an island's ecosystem arrives develops and then uh if if i may tie this into today's topic (laughs) gradually is lost as the island disappears is fascinating they've been observing the island via satellite since its formation but it's only been recently that they've been able to get onto the island. Now, their initial estimates for its age, potential age span or lifespan in 2017 was like 6 to 30 years. So it was a wide margin, okay. but potentially a long time. Closer look shows that it's eroding faster than they expected, mainly due to rain. Okay. And they think it might only last a decade. Interesting. So it probably isn't going to be around for much longer. But it's definitely a very interesting insight into island ecosystems and the life cycle of an island. So the birds are nesting there. Mm-hmm. They're using it. At, that's they're not going there to hunt because there's nothing there. Yeah, they're going there because it's because there's nothing there. There's nothing. No predators <laughs> to eat your eggs and stuff. What a cool! That's so cool. And the it's also fun because the plants that are there were almost assuredly brought there by the birds when they pooped them out oh absolutely so it's it's very cool that and if you look at pictures the island's already mostly green of course it is because plants yeah because plants because grass (laughs) episode episode 38 plants it looks very alien ecosystem terraforming (laughs) that's awesome well my first bit of news is gonna go way back (laughs) we're going back to the triassic to look at one of the oldest known fossil examples of cancer. Fun! (laughs) I'm just bringing all the great topics today. (laughs) This is research uh, by Yara Haradi et al., and I hope that I have pronounced that correctly. If not, I apologize. In the journal JAMA Oncology. JAMA, I infer means the Journal of the American Medical Association, although the, the website, I looked briefly, and it did not say that anywhere. So if I'm wrong, then that's the journal's fault. You should have your name written out on your website. And the news <laughs> article that we will be linking to is a National Geographic article by John Pickrell. Papochiles is a stem turtle that was only discovered just a few years ago in 2015. Stem turtle means that it is a an early relative of the earliest turtles. Mm-hmm. Papochiles is weird. It is kind of turtle shaped, but it doesn't have a shell. But it's very much turtle like, so it's one of the very few 
fossil examples we have of the early evolution and transition into turtles. Well, one of the specimens of Papochiles also has a strange growth on one of its femora, its femur, the upper leg bone. This growth, so the, the, the fossil is from the mid-Triassic of Germany, so we're at, you know, around 220 or so million years ago. This growth has been identified as a periosteal osteosarcoma, or as the article describes it, a highly malignant bone tumor. Wow. This is pretty cool, because as you can imagine, most cancer doesn't fossilize. Mm -mm. Because most cancer is in your skin or your lungs or places that are soft tissue. So in fossils, it's very rare to see evidence of cancer because it rarely leaves marks on the bone. Uh, there are cancer examples known from fossil fish uh, and from at least one amphibian. This is the oldest known cancer in an amniote, which is to say reptile or mammal or bird. Interesting. And what's really interesting about it is that it looks almost exactly, according to the authors, like osteosarcoma in humans. That's really interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, these that, days, it's not really cool, but it's, you know, but it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's, yes. It's intri <laughs> intriguing. How, how fast it find me more cancer turtles. <laughs> Today, the osteosarcoma affects hundreds of people per year here in the United States and certainly more elsewhere that I don't have numbers for. Whether or not it killed this turtle, we don't know that the fossil does not indicate that. Although the authors point out that in humans, osteosarcoma often spreads from the bone to lungs. Oh. And that can often be when it starts causing some severe issues and eventually even death. What's interesting about this, uh, you know, obviously this is a paleontology study, but it's published in an oncology journal. And at least one of the authors is a doctor, like a doctor, like a medical doctor. Because That's cool. This is, yeah, it's interdisciplinary. This is interesting for cancer researchers because we know from other studies that cancer, right, this is one of those wonderful things that unites us all, right? <laughs> cancer is found all across different animals. Some animals uh, are more susceptible. Others are much less susceptible. How cancer relates to environmental changes and to genetics and to our phylogeny, you know, relationships between organisms is really interesting as a question for for medical researchers yeah very complex finding a, a cancer a recognizable cancer back in the triassic suggests not only that you can find modern diseases in ancient specimens which is something that was not necessarily thought to be true that you you know could you even use modern disease symptoms as a as a frame of reference for fossils are you even going to see the same thing yeah Turns out, in this case, yes. And it suggests that modern cancers and the genes and strategies and mechanisms that they use to cancer things are very ancient. Wow. That, that is, this is an, a, a strategy, sort of, uh, you know, cancer strategy, that goes back a very, very long time, which is really interesting to know in the story of the evolution of cancer. That's really fascinating because it, it it is such a infamous disease and there's so many variables to it. The fact that it is basically identical to what we see today, like you said, is not 
what we typically expect with this kind. You would assume that most things would change, you know, especially diseases that are reacting to the body and yeah, that it would change over time with the animals. The fact that it it has stayed consistent is actually very revealing about the nature of this kind of cancer. Yeah, it makes sense. If, mm-hmm. if cancer is a an error in cell duplication, mm-hmm. that process probably hasn't changed very much. Yeah, interesting. I I, I would love to talk to a, a expert in cancer research or treatment to, to get their insights on this, because I feel like there's books full that we just don't have the background to truly <laughs> appreciate. Oh, yeah. Like, well, I know that that's cool. one thing that I, I, we should mention is that this is but one form of cancer that we will probably not find evidence of most types of cancer. Indeed. So cancer cancer is not a disease. Cancer is an entire spectrum of disease, of, of, of different diagnoses, which is why there's no cure for cancer. Mm-hmm. You can't cure cancer can't you have there's there's it's all sorts of different varieties of this thing yeah and that's that's what makes it so tough is it is a malfunction of your genetics and that can happen anywhere you have genetics yes (laughs) in your body so it's very very complex in situation to situation very interesting well my next bit of news is legit paleo so Good. Get out of my wishy-washy stage. This <laughs> is to uh, talk about a, a subject that I don't know if we've touched on. Uh, it's, I wanted to talk a little bit about Megalodon. So. Oh, I've heard. That's that clam. Yeah. yeah well, this is the, the shark. The shark. Uh, oh, there's a shark? Yes. So Megalodon, you guys may have heard of it. Uh, they, they made a movie. Um, or God. seven. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Megalodon being the big famous shark, the biggest shark we've ever found. This is an adjustment according to a a survey of the fossils and research to when the estimated date of extinction for Megalodon may actually fall. It's extinct? Yes, it is. It is unfortunately. I Are you sure? I I pretty Pretty... I saw this YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is dead. I we're starting off the episode with some bad news. Um, <laughs> this is just extinction all across I, the whole episode. I was gonna try to ease into it, but let's just <laughs> rip the band-aid off. It it has been said to have gone extinct about two and a half million years ago. This adjusts that, looking at fossils and other research now this study was done by bosnecker et al in pure j the article that we'll be linking to is by maya wehas in national geographic as well so bosnecker and the uh, other researchers on this project were aiming to define when exactly megalodon ototus megalodon which we mentioned last news article is the species name that you will see on many of the research articles nowadays Mm -hmm. when exactly it went extinct uh this this got sparked way back in 2007 when bosnecker found a megalodon tooth and asked the question why megalodon seems to be so rare in the pliocene epoch five and a half five point three to two and a half million years ago 
and wanted to see if this was genuine rarity or if this was some other issue that was just causing the fossils not to have been preserved or show up as readily. This is Bobby Bosnecker, right? Indeed. Robert, Robert, I know mm-hmm. him. Oh, cool. And Sarah, Robert, Robert and Sarah, both paleontologists down in South Carolina. Neat. Uh, who do a lot of whale and, and ocean work. That, yeah. and that is indeed what they are doing here. Go on. So the team that was put together for this went looking for megalodon teeth. And they looked in multiple locations along the Pacific coast so throughout California that were already dated to Miocene, early Pliocene, late Pliocene, and Pleistocene. Cool. Ranging across much of the Megalodon's time and the previous dates of when it went extinct. Because typically the dates you will see are right at 2.6 million years ago that Megalodon died off. Right, right at the Pliocene-Pleistocene boundary. Indeed. This date is actually from a fairly recent bit of research that is one of the studies that the research team also looked at. So they didn't only go looking for new teeth, they also took in data from other studies. One of the big ones was in 2014, Pimiento and Clements in PLOS One published a paper about the same topic, when did Megalodon go extinct? And based on the specimens they used and observed, they came up with the date of 2.6 million years ago. Right. Now, whilst going through these specimens and this data, the current research team decided to pull and not include some of the previously found teeth. And they listened some of the reasons why. Because they found inconsistencies or situations where the dating method or the uh, information available about the tooth was unsatisfactory. Okay, so uncertain data. Uncertain. And they list the reasons why. Now there's responses to this decision that we'll discuss at the end of this news, but the reasoning they gave mainly was that some of the elements showed signs of being chemically altered by the element phosphorus. Hmm. And this is signs that it has been displaced, that it is not in the original sediment where it originally fossilized. Right. So that would indicate that the date could also be incorrect. If it was found in a upper layer but had been moved there, Megalodon wasn't actually around then. It just got shuffled. Right. So they removed specimens that show that element They also removed others that either were found to have wrong dates or vague dates. And there's a couple of reasons that this can happen. A few, actually. Some were off due to the age of the rock being redefined, which is something I found interesting. That as geologists come through and redefine what the age ranges of different layers of rocks actually are as they discover more or as they redefine what layers are included in different ages, some of this shifted the information for some of the teeth. And Makes sense. those were removed until they would be restudied. Some specimens just were misidentified and were actually great white teeth, mm-hmm. you know, from fossil specimens of the modern great white. Sometimes the age of the rock uh, was determined by the presence of megalodon teeth. Right. Which is circular dating. 
Right. If your if your other dates are incorrect, then that is no longer. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had secure dates elsewhere, then you could say, oh, okay, yeah, that's the same date. Indeed. So because they don't have those other dates to confirm that or other sources for the dating, they remove those. Mm-hmm. And then there was some situations where they only had a maximum date, but not a minimum date for the sediment that it was found in, which is was too vague for them. Mm-hmm. And others where the, the date range was just too broad. just It was too wide for them to be comfortable with it. Right. So they removed those. So it sounds like they removed all... That th- there were no definite examples of megalodon specimens from that later time frame. And, and some of these were even within the normal date range, but they, they were removing... I see. Anything okay. that they felt too uncertain on. So for the whole range of, yes. of Megalodon, you're trying to refine the whole sample. Indeed. Got it. Uh, there are others that just had complications, like some were actually in private collections and not accessible to direct research. Right. So you can't confirm the information. Indeed. They estimated that they excluded about 10 to 15% of the samples used in that 2014 study. Okay. Oh, I mean, not ridiculous. It's not like they chopped it in half, but it's a decent chunk. They, when using this new look at the information, came up with the new date of 3.6 million years being the extinction of the famous Megalodon a million years earlier. Yeah. Which is significant because the original 2.6 lines nicely up with some other events that had been kind of tagged on as potential causes, as potential, potential smoking guns. One, and the one you'll typically most often see or uh, hear mentioned, is that during that time, there was also a major extinction in many marine mammals. Yeah, I think we actually talked about this in a previous news piece somewhere, mm-hmm. I believe. I believe. Yeah, I, I think it did come up. And so... Since we know that was some of their food source, if they have, have a mass extinction there, large predator need lots of food, could have jump-started the extinction of this large shark. There's another one that has been pointed to, but has not been, did not have a lot of evidence to directly back it up. But during that time, some astronomers have pointed out that there was also a supernova Yes, I've seen that come up as well. And I mention it because if you look it up, you'll see it pop up. That would have given off something known as uh, muon radiation, which Mm -hmm. is known to be harmful to large aquatic animals in shallow coastal environments. But there's other evidence that points that it was more of a gradual, not a flash fry. Right. But this new date completely takes both of those out of the running Right, that it was already extinct far before any of that. Indeed. So though these seem to sync up, if this new date is correct, those two can't be the cause. So so what did kill the Megalodon, I hear you cry? <laughs> the suggestion given in this research paper is that it may have been due to the global rise of the Great White. As a competitor. As a competitor. Now, yeah. the Great White Shark evolved six to seven million years ago in the Pacific, but didn't start to spread uh, throughout its range until about 4 million years ago. Okay. And that global distribution is right before the new date of Megalodon's demise. Yeah, so another event that lines up. Indeed. Now, 
your immediate response may be, yeah, but great white sharks are this big and megalodons this big. <laughs> so the suggestion is that as even though great whites may not be able to compete directly with an adult megalodon, they would be able to compete with younger megalodons and may have outcompeted one of the life stages of megalodon. So effectively chopped the knees out. Interesting. Out of the life cycle. Oh, that's a cool idea. Now, people have come in response to this study. Uh, Pimiento praised the study for its thoroughness, but did uh, caution against the exclusion of the broad dates, because even though they are not, uh, to quote, you may get larger uncertainty around the extinction time, but you wouldn't be disregarding valuable information. So Pimiento, who did the original study that they were using some of that info from, cautions at removing those. Right. Others have also pointed out that the great white shark is a potential explanation, but it may have also been other sharks. The tiger shark is also seen to have been spreading around this time and have been prevalent. So placing it just on another famous shark is not necessarily the definite answer. And they are not definitely convinced that strict competition of this sort could drive Megalodon out so quickly right right so interesting but there's not it is not without uh critiques yes it's been controversial it's been hot it's been popping up all around oh the yeah recently. and i know that uh bobby has it's it has bobby's been having a lot of fun reposting <laughs> uh both bobby and sarah i've seen reposting all the different articles that and, and the various headlines that reporters have come up with to discuss this particular bit of news it's cool. It's very interesting very to see interesting. what what more will come of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's anytime you go messing with the big old megalodon, people respond. <laughs> they do. <laughs> well, speaking of famous fossils, our last bit of news is about the original specimen of Archaeopteryx. Hey, I've heard and of that one how too. How it might not be Archaeopteryx at all. Oh, we're just disillusioning things all we're over just, the place. We're, we're bringing it all down <laughs> it's pulling the mask off this is research by thomas k at all in scientific reports it's open access so you'll get to read the whole thing but we will also include a article in zme science archaeopteryx as i'm sure you know is the famous early bird the first bird quote quote in the fossil record uh famous for uh revealing the transition from non-bird dinosaurs to bird dinosaurs in 1862, one fossil feather from the Solenhofen limestone was assigned to Archaeopteryx, and it has long been considered. It was designated, although apparently there's a little, perhaps a little bit of argument over whether or not it was properly designated, the holotype of Archaeopteryx. A holotype, and we've talked about this before, anytime there is a new species, fossil or living, you designate an example specimen. Yes. That this is all of the defining traits of the creature and the name of the creature or organism of any kind are, are linked to this specimen so that when you come back to this, you know, if you find a new fossil, you can go over to this specimen and use that to confirm it. it this, this is what all other examples should be measured by. Yes. Now, around the same time, of course, there was also the famous London specimen, which has been been treated more like a holotype because it's an actual skeleton as opposed to being one fossil feather but 
the name Archaeopteryx was first published in association with this feather. However, identifying what kind of feather it is has been a challenge because it, so originally it was considered to be a wing feather, one of the big primary or secondary feathers that is the bulk of the wing space. But there's been some uncertainty, particularly due to what the authors call the mystery of the missing quill. <laughs> In the original write-up, the feather was described as having a long quill, the calamus, the, you know, you think of a quill pen, like a feather pen, it's the part you dip in the ink. Yeah, the tip you'd write with. The part that attaches to the bird. But you can't see that quill anymore. Oops. Probably because the fossil has degraded over time, you know, from pre preparation or, or light or whatever conditions. And this is why collection conditions are important. Sure is. Researchers have tried to spot the quill using X-ray fluorescence and UV imaging, and none of those work. In this study, they used laser-stimulated fluorescence, cool. which is a technique that uses a high-powered laser to reveal different geochemical properties and fluoresces different materials with different colors. And when they did that, they found the what they call the geochemical halo of the quill. Nice. And that length and shape matches the original description. So they found the missing quill, which is pretty cool. Now they have a full picture of the feather, or at least a, a much more complete picture mm -hmm. of the feather. And they conclude that it is not a primary feather, but it's also too small to be a secondary feather. Uh, and and that the, the quill shape is not right for a primary feather. Uh, the feather is not right for a secondary feather. Also, the shape and, and curvature is not right for a tail feather. So they're not sure what it is. Uh, they point out that it could be a covert or contour feather. So these are some of the feathers that... Uh, uh, covert feathers are smaller feathers that sit up toward the arm of the wing and cover feathers below them. And we don't have good examples of those to compare with Archaeopteryx, but the feather in question doesn't look like those kinds of feathers in modern birds. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't look like any of the types of feathers that we would think it is in Archaeopteryx. So it exists the distinct possibility that the feather does not belong to Archaeopteryx, that it belongs to a different feathered organism from the time period. And of course, at the time it was discovered, that would have been a strange proposal. But now we know that the world was full of feathered creatures <laughs> at that time. Just lousy. Non-bird dinosaurs and early birds. So it could indeed be that this feather associated for all this time with being the original specimen named Archaeopteryx might not actually be Archaeopteryx. That's the thing that's so crazy about this to me is that <laughs> it's like those uh, um, magic glasses books that were so popular back when we were kids to where, you know, you'd have the the picture in the book and then you'd put on the special cellophane foldable cardboard glasses and it would reveal yeah. as effectively that's what happened here where we had the fossil we revealed <laughs> a secret image and it threw everything a little bit into chaos <laughs> and now we're wrong yep <laughs> and that's it's such an interesting concept because i liked your point about when it was first discovered it would have seemed silly to suggest it wasn't from archaeopteryx and now it would it almost seems silly to assume that it must be yes <laughs> absolutely how the times have changed 
Now, the part of this that intrigues me is the question of if we were able to, dis to discover what species this belongs to, if this is the holotype, indeed, that has interesting ramifications. Allow me to explain why I was in intrigued about this. Uh, the holotype is the original specimen. It's also the specimen that holds the name mm -hmm. of the species. So if the if the identification of the holotype changes, that impacts everything else that bears that name. Mm -hmm. So if the feather that was originally identified as Archaeopteryx turns out to be some other creature that doesn't already have a name, then the proper taxonomic name for that new species is Archaeopteryx because that's was the name given to the first specimen of that creature. And since it's a different creature than all the other specimens that have been named Archaeopteryx, that would, in, in theory, make all of our Archaeopteryx specimens not Archaeopteryx. Yep. Now, this turns out to not at all be a problem. <laughs> For two reasons. Number one, that feather is no longer considered the reference specimen. Indeed. So in 2011, the, in the, the Commission for of Zoological Nomenclature responded to a proposal to set aside the holotype and designate what is called a neotype, which basically means a replacement for the holotype. Neo is new. Neo is new. So they took the London specimen, which is a whole skeleton, and said, that's now the reference specimen instead of the single feather because... The single, that's yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> exactly because people are like hey we can't base this species on a single feather also everyone's already been using the london specimen we found a skull compare it to the holotype yeah i mean maybe doesn't look right to me <laughs> i don't see this anywhere and people have been using the london specimen as the reference skeleton anyway so it's like all right that's the neotype not an issue but the other thing, of course, is even if it was, even if there was a taxonomic mishap, there are, so uh, uh, priority rules in taxonomy. This mm -hmm. is why Brontosaurus became Apatosaurus. This yes. is why names get shifted because the first name is the official name. And if it, if, if it gets synonymized later, then that first name has priority. But there have been cases where this has been overruled. For example... There is a dinosaur, that, a genus that was named in the late 1800s, uh, Manospondylus, which, if I remember the story correctly, turned out to be the same thing as Tyrannosaurus, but was named first. Oh. But by the time that was realized, paleontologists rightfully <laughs> decided that there's no way you can change the name of Tyrannosaurus. Yes. That you just... And so the the... the Zoological nomenclature, the, the the International Commission, the ICZN, said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna skip this rule." And if the same thing had happened to Archaeopteryx, they absolutely would have kept Archaeopteryx. Yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting bit of for all of you out there who are interested in the the esoteric rule, the lore, <laughs> the, the naming lore of paleontology. There's a fun little mind game for you. Yeah, this it's. It is not, uh, fossil names do not work like legal documents where it's like, hey, it's written down. You have to. It, <laughs> we we well, can have a meeting. Often they do. <laughs> yeah, but we, we can have a meeting in these cases 
to discuss. Well, you have a you have a meeting and you go, so do you want to be the one that tells everyone in the world that T-Rex isn't T-Rex anymore? Yep. Because be my guest. <laughs> the mic is right over there. <laughs> so, with that, that's enough news. That's enough mirth. <laughs> Let's move on to our main topic and talk about how everything is dying everywhere. After this cheery jingle. <laughs> <laughs> When I talk to people about endangered species and and the state of the modern world, I often encourage them to think about their favorite animals. Because usually the way I like to phrase it is, think about your favorite animal. It's probably endangered. (laughs) Yeah. Especially because most people's favorite animals tend to be big, charismatic animals. So, hey, Will, how are crocs doing? Crocs are an interesting case, because... About half of them are completely fine. Okay. And then the rest are not. <laughs> and are very much not. If you go through the list, half are what we call least concern, which means we're we're not worried. We're not right. Ca- we're not counting the numbers every single year to make sure we're just keeping a general eye on them like we are on all animals. But the rest are either vulnerable, which means things are things are not doing great and everything else is critically endangered Ooh, that's yeah critically endangered is the step before you start listing things as extinct and so there's no in between they're doing fine they're kind of not doing great and they're almost gone which are the species that are critically endangered so the ones that are critically endangered are often found in small Areas are very particular environments. Uh, some of the, the famous ones, probably the best known one, is going to be the Indian gharial. Yeah. It's found in very small areas. It was almost all of these are due to overhunting for leather, for meat, and in other cases to protect typically livestock, sometimes people. Mm-hmm. The Siamese crocodile, the slender snouted crocodile, uh, both species that we now know of, which is actually furthered reduced the populations once we realized it wasn't one species yep we talked about that in a recent news <laughs> indeed piece uh the orinoco crocodile mm-hmm. the cuban is extremely threatened and the philippine crocodile the only other endangered none of the caimans caimans are all doing pretty much okay the chinese alligator which is yep. found in such a ridiculously small area on most of the big range maps, it's not even showing up because it's just a dot. So there's a range there. Yeah. Some are doing okay, some not so much. Now, the nice thing with crocodilians is in those cases, the Nile, Saltwater, and American Alligator, three of the most well-known, were all almost wiped out in their ranges. Okay. Uh, I believe the the saltwater, the statistics were that in the mid-1900s, it was, its population was reduced by 95%. Wow. But all three were then protected, hunting regulated, and typically farms put in place have bounced back to least concern status. 
Very nice. So it's possible. Yeah, when given the chance, crocodilians are very good at the conservation side of things. But yeah, we we like to hunt them. Hmm. On my my end of things, my favorite animals, snakes are much harder to assess than crocs. Uh, well, like count count which eleven are doing okay and which eleven. <laughs> Isn't that how it works for all great yeah, animals? I mean, that's what you I have, did. You have two dozen of them, and then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> the reptile database, as of last June, lists thirty-seven hundred species of snakes. <laughs> the IUCN, that is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the organization that designates, they keep the red list. And that's where all the descriptions I was just using came from. Right. Least concerned, vulnerable, critically endangered. That's all IUCN uh, terminology. The IUCN red list uh, lists just over 2,300 snake species that, that they have assessed uh, to at least some degree. 22% of them are considered data deficient, which means that there is not enough information to to classify them. But 16% are considered threatened in one way or another. And threatened runs the gamut from, you know, a little threatened, from vulnerable, all the way through to critically endangered. Indeed. So about 16, at least 16% of snakes, and this is only the snakes that have been assessed. So about one in six Species of snakes are considered threatened. There are, the IUCN lists, four species of snake that have gone extinct in the last few centuries. Oh, wow. Four recently extinct species, all of them uh, from islands. Hofstetter's worm snake, which lived in Mauritius, uh, was last seen in the 17th century, 1600s. Underwood's musarana from the uh, island of St. Lucia, last seen in the 19th century, the 1800s, and then the Round Island Burrowing Boa, also from Mauritius, and the Barbados Racer, were last seen in the 1970s and 60s, respectively. And all four are considered to have gone extinct recently during the time of human activity causing things to go extinct. Yeah, islands, islands get hit hard. They sure do. There's also been a few studies that have found snake populations in decline around the various parts of the world. And there's also this snake fungal disease going around now. Yeah. Which isn't great. Darn fungus. So, listeners, what's your favorite group of animals? How are they doing? Uh, if you go to the IUCN website, uh, you can actually look at the red list and see how your group, your favorite groups of animals are doing conservation-wise. Have you called them recently? It's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your favorite species is? <laughs> we live in a time full of extinctions. Uh, the last tens of thousands of years. Um, obviously, it goes back to the end of the Ice Age. We talked about this extensively in episode 25, that the, within the last 100,000 years or so, uh, the, at the end of the Pleistocene, we saw the extinctions of mammoths and ground sloths and saber-toothed cats and all those other cool ice age animals in closer to historical times times of people there's a bunch of famous examples of species that have been driven to extinction passenger pigeons stellar mm -hmm. sea cow thylacines and i'm sure you can think of plenty more and there are a bunch that are yet more recent uh, e even even more recent than that the tacopa pupfish is a species of fish that is reported to have gone extinct in the 70s. The golden toad, very famously, extinct yeah. in the 80s. 
uh, certain subspecies, populations like the Javan tiger and the Pyrenean ibex. The Pyrenean ibex uh, went extinct. We talked about them in episode 35, extinct in 2000. Yeah. And yet more. There was actually a, a news article this morning, as of this recording, about the the an island rat near Australia, in or near Australia, that is considered the first species to be driven extinct by climate change. Oh, wow. Directly by climate change, because its island habitat uh, was struggling. So, obviously, we, we, we hear a lot about extinction. Obviously, there are famous animals that are endangered, that are, that are on their way to extinction. Some have already gone extinct. But how do we assess extinctions? How do we make sense of how many extinctions are happening and, and sort of what, what is the state of extinction in the world today? Let's start with some definitions. Extinction is the complete disappearance of a group of animals. Usually when we talk about extinction, we're talking about species, right? Those snakes I listed are species that have gone extinct, although you can also be talking about subspecies like the Javan tiger. Mm -hmm. And you can be talking about populations. Yes. So these are sometimes called extirpation when a population of a species is it goes extinct. Uh, back home in, on Long Island, Long Island used to have timber rattlesnakes, but it doesn't nowadays because that the Long Island population of those rattlesnakes is extinct. They were extirpated yes. from the island. Well, it's like the American crocodile is listed as vulnerable, but here in Florida is critically protected because right. the Florida population is very, very small and was almost wiped out. Mass extinction is when you get a lot of extinction all in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I bring up mass extinction is because the whole idea of the sixth extinction is putting modern day extinctions in comparison with what are called the big five. Five times in the fossil record over the last 500 million years, we have seen ridiculous levels of extinction. At the end of the Ordovician, Devonian, Permian, Triassic, and Cretaceous periods, the latter three of which we talked about in entire episodes, episodes 5, 15, and 45. Oh, that's convenient. All our times where we saw a good 70% at least of global diversity disappear in usually a very short amount of time. A couple million years at most, often much shorter than that. Mass extinctions are huge milestones, like these big mile markers in the fossil record. They usually uh, take a very long time to recover. So if we're trying to compare modern day extinctions to these mass extinctions, that's kind of a big deal if that is something comparable to what we're seeing today. Yeah, that, that's a significant comparison. But even outside of mass extinctions, extinction is common. Extinction is something that happens all of the time. Extinction is, origination and extinction of species is as regular as life and death of individuals. Indeed. Which raises the question, what is normal? How much extinction is normal? This has been estimated by a few, uh, a number of studies that have tried to calculate what we call the background extinction rate. So one example, very famous example, uh, just from a couple years ago, Barnowski et al. in 2017 looked at the fossil record of mammals, specifically uh, over, you know, the Cenozoic era and then really good data for the last few million years, few hundred thousand years, and tried to look at the fossil record and say, how many species are we seeing going extinct 
in the fossil record over different periods of time, assuming that the percentages we're seeing in the fossil record are roughly representative of what you'd see across all mammals. And mammals are great because we have a wonderful fossil record of mammals, and we live in a time where we have databases of fossils now. Indeed. So you can actually go online and just look through these databases and, and get all that big data numbers, which is really, really handy for this. They calculated in their study the rate of extinction using a unit, extinctions per million species per year. Okay, okay. And their estimate was that mammals uh, seem to, on average, go extinct at 1.8 extinctions per million species per year. Which is to say that for every million species of mammals on the planet, you'd expect to see 1.8 of them disappear every year. Now, to put that in more realistic terms, there are not millions of species of mammals on the planet. Nope. There are about 5,000. And that number comes out to be, per 5,000 mammals, roughly one extinction per century. All right. All right. So every 100 years, based on this rate, we would expect to see one mammal species, give or take, go extinct. Yeah, that, that that's that's fairly reasonable. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had any clue what to guess before hearing that right. number. <laughs> I have no, but that yeah, I that I can see that. Now this is uh, they point out in the study that this is actually a high estimate. Uh, other studies have estimated closer to one e per msy, which would be you know an extinction for per five thousand every two centuries. Yeah, and for other animals, so other studies have done very similar. Uh, estimates in general estimates for animals on the whole tend to be much lower than mammals mammals have sort of a quicker turnover rate in the recent fossil record whereas reptiles and invertebrates often you'll tend to last longer the, those species it's that fast-paced lifestyle we live it is so for animals in general estimates of standard background rates usually hover around 0.1 extinctions per million species per year. So, how many species is that, right, per million species per year, is a little hard to answer because we don't know how many species there are. Yeah. But to take a general estimate and say, if there are 10 million species on the planet today, and we're seeing 0.1 extinctions per million species per year, that would suggest that per year we should be seeing one extinction. Mm -hmm. That one species would go extinct every year in a world of 10 million animals, or of 10 million species. Yes. If that rate is true for animals and plants and everything, that, you know, that's sort of our baseline. Yeah. For, for animal species alone, if there's, you know, 2 million species, we'd see an animal going extinct every several years. One species every several years. Mm-hmm. This is our baseline. So how many are going extinct today in comparison to what we consider to be the norm? This is actually really hard to know because it depends on how you determine extinctions. So the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, for individual species extinctions, their definition, a taxon, that is species, genus, you know, etc. A taxon is presumed extinct when exhaustive surveys in known and or expected habitat at appropriate times throughout its historic range have failed to record an individual. 
Surveys should be over a time frame appropriate to the taxon's life cycle and life form. What that means is, if we know where to look, and we've mm-hmm. looked a whole bunch, and we haven't seen it in a while, we consider it extinct. Yes. It's, we, we keep looking, and we're not finding it in the places where we should be finding it. And we've done this enough, and we've waited long enough to say this is probably extinct. Yeah. Uh, some individual studies go a little bit further than that. A study actually came out just last year. Uh, Butchhart et al. 2018 looked at 51 endangered species of birds in various parts of the world and quantified not just their records, their historical records and searches for them, but also the intensity of the threats they're facing. Oh, that makes sense. And came up with a method to estimate likelihood of extinction. In their study, they proposed that three bird species, two in Brazil and one in Hawaii, should be considered extinct that weren't previously, and four others should be considered as possibly extinct. Okay. And one other is extinct in the wild. Yes. So in their one study, what their assessment method, they eight species extinct or likely extinct based on their assessment. Yeah. So this approach is looking at individual taxa. The IUCN lists extinctions since the year 1500. So in the last 500 years or so is is where they're assessing this. The IUCN, as of February 2019, lists as extinct 750 animals and 122 plants. That's more than how many years you just said. An additional 69 plants and animal species are listed as extinct in the wild. Yeah. Most of these have happened in the last century. (laughs) So one study uh, from 2015, so these numbers have probably changed, pointed out that among vertebrates, uh, vertebrates alone, mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, fish, the last 500 years, 338 species uh, are recorded extinct by the IUCN, but 198 of those happened since 1900. Wow. So the species, the extinction rate appears to be, based on these numbers, much higher now than earlier. Or at the very least, th- that we are recording it as much higher now than earlier. Wow. 750 animal species in 500 years is definitely higher than the extinction rate that we calculated <laughs> as the background. Wh- yeah, wh- whichever one you look at. Whichever one of those you look at. <laughs> but there are limits to what that sort of assessment can actually determine. So, Mm -hmm. for example, while the IUCN has assessed pretty much all mammals and birds and most amphibians, less than half of reptiles and fish have been assessed. All right. And there is definitely a bias to be had that we probably look at threatened species before we look at species that aren't threatened. Indeed. Also worth noting that sometimes we think something was extinct and it turns out it's not. Mm -hmm. One study that I found pointed out that this has happened for about one third of mammal species reportedly extinct have ended up being rediscovered. Interesting. That's significant. Now, it's worth pointing out that they were declared extinct for a reason. So even when they're rediscovered, it's not like we found a whole happy population 
every time you rediscover a species. Usually they are critically endangered at that point anyway. But that's how all those all those kids movies end. You just found a whole new population of them. <laughs> yeah. We found them. Here's here's the two we found. It's all good now. <laughs> <laughs> also worth considering, we don't know what all of the animals out there are. So yeah. it is estimated that uh, this is from a, a McRae et al. 2017. It is estimated that 13% of reptiles have not been described. 22% of fish and 57% of amphibians. Jeez. So we don't have the whole picture, which could mean that there are perfectly happy populations of species that we just don't know of yet, mm-hmm. but is also very, very likely to mean that there are species going extinct before we discover them. Yeah, which is a bummer. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> In all likelihood, the IUCN numbers are probably underestimates because the way that they're calculating it, right, the, those boas, the, the, the snakes that I talked about, probably went extinct in like the 70s. Mm-hmm. But we didn't, though the, 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 the round island boa was not declared extinct until 2015 or 2016. Yeah. Because we have to wait. We have to, you know, we can only assess that for species we know of and that we've intensely studied and that we have good data for. So other studies have tried to figure out, all right, instead of looking at individual species, can we get a sense of how much extinction is happening, just in a, in a big general sense? And what they usually try to do is get small samples and then extrapolate their data to larger data sets. Heads up, this is the part where we go downhill. Yay! Rainier et al. in 2015 did this for snails. They took a random sample of 200 land snail species from all around the world and reassessed their extinction status. So they used two different methods. They had experts analyze sort of their the historical records and what threats they're facing, similar to that other study uh, with the birds. And they created a mathematical model to take into account all different factors and predict Mm-hmm. the extinction status of these snails. Both methods agreed, which is wonderful in science, corroboration, hooray. Both methods predicted, uh, assessed, analyzed, concluded that around 10% of the sample should be extinct. Wow. So out of 200 snail species, 10%, or, you know, around 20 of them, are extinct. Now that's a big number. 20 out of 200 is a lot. Couldn't they have agreed on something else? Yeah, couldn't you? Couldn't your data have found something else? Now they chose a random sampling of snails in the hopes that they would be representative of the whole. This is like when they do polls and they're like, "We polled a thousand Americans, and here's what they think about ice cream or or yogurt or the imminent threat of nuclear war." Yeah, because the the likeliness that you picked a thousand people who all have the exact same opinion is not is is not very likely right if we assume that this sample of snails and their relationship with extinction and threats are representative of all land snails then that would suggest that thousands of snail species have recently gone extinct wow and if you extrapolate that out to invertebrates in general if you assume that these snails are more or less an average example of land invertebrates, then that suggests 
tens of thousands yeah. of land invertebrate extinctions. A random sampling of land snails said 10% extinction. That's t- scary. And it's really scary because these are not species we otherwise would have noticed. Right. Yes. You know, when you think about like, oh, well, we're not going to miss like tigers going extinct. No, but a species of snail or beetle or something that lives on three trees in one forest, that could very easily s- slide in under the radar. I mean, just the the real way to put how many of these small, stealthy species there are is just think about how many species of beetle do you think live where you are? <laughs> or it's like when you talk about spiders. Yes, exactly. Like how many spiders do you walk by every day? Yeah, because I guarantee you're not thinking of a high enough number. There's a lot of beetles. <laughs> An inordinate fondness for beetles. And it's that example of th- those, we could lose a species of beetle and have difficulty identifying just because of how many. Yep. Like we could be losing species in a group that is so numerous, it's hard to define exactly how many there are. Yes. Now, that is one way of trying to estimate extinction numbers. Another way that a number, several studies have tried to do is to calculate our current extinction rate. Mm-hmm. So similar to the background extinction rate, can we look at extinctions over time in, in living populations and see how those are doing? Pim et al. 2014, and we'll put all these in the blog post as usual, reviewed a whole bunch of, you know, they, they brought together a bunch of different references from different studies that have attempted to do this. Studies have looked at different types of animals in different populations and different habitats all over the world. In some places, extinction rate is really high. Mm-hmm. In other places, it's lower. Analyses of modern extinction rate average. Now, if you recall, Barnowski et al. estimated mammals at just under two extinctions per million species, million species per year. Yes. The general estimates tend to hover around 0.1 or as high as 1 extinctions per million species per year. Estimates of modern extinction rate tend to average around 100 extinctions per million species per year. That's that's a bit of an increase. If the background rate is 0.1 to 1 E per MSY, then that means that our modern extinction rate is 100 to 1,000 times greater than the background extinction rate. Well, that's more thousands than I thought you were going to say. For comparison, by the way, uh, the Barnaski study also mentioned the extinction rate estimates for the late Pleistocene megafaunal extinction, and the highest estimate they reported was nine extinctions per million species per year. (laughs) Wow. Now, these numbers, this is the part where, for me, I start to lose it. Not lose it like have a freak out, although that is a legitimate response. (laughs) But like to suggest, right, because if there's 10 million species in the world and we're losing 100 species per million species per year, that's 1,000 species a year. Yeah. And that starts to sound insane. Yeah. That to the point where you at least for me it's that doesn't seem to make any sense. And the way that that sort of made it click for me that I will share is to think of it in terms of percentages. Mhm. So 1000 species per year us, using our sort of hypothetical estimate numbers would be 0.1%. 
yes. of species per year. So over a decade, you'd see 1% of species loss. Yes. The Amazon rainforest has reportedly lost 20% of its area over 40 years. The Amazon rainforest is the largest rainforest in the world. It is huge. It is extraordinarily diverse. Yes. If you told me that over the same time period that the Amazon rainforest has been decreased by 20%, the continent of South America has lost 4% of its species, that does not seem ridiculous. In fact, that seems like a low estimate. I would be surprised yes. that that many survived. Mm-hmm. Well, 4% is what that extinction rate says over 40 years. Yeah. In the in the, the grand scope of the changes that are going on in the world, losing that little percentage over time starts to not seem that ridiculous. And when the percentages start to not seem that ridiculous and you start to think, like I do, in with that comparison, okay, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, a tenth of a percent of population of, of species in, in, in a particular area per year isn't crazy well that means that a thousand species is not crazy yes which is real jarring because a thousand species is absolutely crazy that's a lot of biodiversity and this is the number that we keep coming back to we keep seeing these numbers that we are losing thousands of species of fish and frogs and tiny little invertebrates and plants and all sorts of tiny little creatures that we probably have never met. Yeah. And that's that's ridiculous. It it's it's daunting and humbling when you start putting those numbers to it. We we so often underestimate just how many animals are around us. You know, we typically think of the big named ones, but the number of fish that live in an area, the number of small mice and birds are so often underestimated and then thinking that those are just poofing at that rate really starts to bring it into more, a more clear view of what we're potentially dealing with in the preparation for this episode i read half of because i ran out of time but i read part uh, of elizabeth colbert's book the sixth extinction and i will finish it because it's awesome well it's <laughs> not awesome but it's a good book <laughs> and once again interesting once again yeah fun. it's fascinating she goes you know around the world in her book and talks about these sort of charismatic species extinctions and just the understanding from our scientific analyses over and over again that that loss of charismatic famous species is the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. that is our sample just like those snails the, the that that particular little sample of snails we saw that much devastation in every time we look at these samples we're seeing these similar pictures absolutely those charismatic losses are just emblematic of what's happening all over the planet because whatever's affecting or affecting that animal or causing that extinction is not going to just solely affect that individual it's going to affect all the others that are relying on the similar ecological requirements or environments or on that animal yep which brings me to my next point now uh rest assured listeners that this is going to get doom and gloom for a little bit but we will end on a kind of high note like toy story <laughs> 3 this episode <laughs> will end sort of happy yes 
but also like Toy Story 3, it's going to get way worse first. (laughs) Species extinctions are not the only concern. So a study that came out in 2017, Ceballos et al. in 2017, surveyed vertebrate species, not for extinctions, but for population loss. In their study, they surveyed records for 27,000 vertebrates, which is about half uh, of known vertebrates, and found that a third of them are in decline in terms of population size, that a third Mm -hmm. of these vertebrates are slowly losing their, their numbers. All of the mammals they surveyed, which was 177 species of mammals, have lost more than a third of their range. Yeah. And almost half of the land mammals they looked at have lost 80% of their range or more in the last century. And if that sounds insane to you, look up a map of lion range. Yes. Because the comparison between the historic range of lions and the modern range of lions is bewildering. It It's really baffling. And it once again, it is so easy to not notice it happening when your whole life lions have only been here and there. Right. The World Wildlife Fund in 2018 released their latest Living Planet Index report, which uh, surveyed 16,000 populations of 4,000 species of vertebrates, which is a small percentage of vertebrates. That's like 6% of vertebrate species. But again, hoping for a representative sample. Among those, they found that populations are generally decreasing Mm -hmm. across vertebrates, fish, amphibians, birds, reptiles, and mammals. And the average decrease uh, in the last 40 years or so is 60%. Wow. Which is not to say, as some news articles were, were, were arguing, that 60% of vertebrates have disappeared. Yes. That's not what that means, because smaller populations are going to tend to suffer more. Mm-hmm. So the actual number of animals disappearing is not 60%, but that populations are being lost, that the size of populations is decreasing 60% on average. Which means that we're not just losing species. We are, even the species that aren't extinct yet, lots and lots of them are in decline. We're losing populations and we're losing subspecies. The IUCN lists that, you know, just under a thousand species going, having gone extinct in the last 1500 years, but they list another over 5,000 species as critically endangered today. More than a third, a third or more of amphibians are considered threatened. A third of sharks and rays, a third of reef building corals. Yeah. It's not just about who has already gone extinct. It's about all the other species that are headed in that direction. One paper that I, uh, uh, the Pym et al. paper had this sentence in it that I thought was just, yeah. <laughs> Hoffman et al., another study showed that on average, 52 species of mammals, birds, and amphibians, out of 22,000 total, 52 species of mammals, birds, and amphibians, every year move one category closer to extinction. Oh, that is a very intimidating countdown. It's terrifying. Yeah, one, another thing that I always remind myself of and try to mention to other people is even animals that we often consider as least concern 
still are not at the numbers or ranges that they were. No, this is very true. So, to sum up the first section of our conversation, yeah, extinction is pretty high now. We are significantly higher than normal extinction rates. We are experiencing not only severe losses of extinctions, but severe declines in natural populations. The world today is a is full of death. There's a lot of struggling going on within uh, natural populations of animals and plants. Indeed. Uh, the numbers are staggering. The percentages are crazy. The, the, the extent is all over the globe. So it certainly sounds, if, if you were of the opinion that calling our current state a biodiversity crisis was an exaggeration, hopefully uh, you, you have been <laughs> given reason to think otherwise. Yeah, it, it's, it's not just throwing the hands up at the first sign of an animal not doing well. There is significant data going back quite a ways that this is an unusual state for the world to be in. Indeed. Now, in our previous extinction episodes, one of the biggest sort of mysteries and, and most of our discussion in all of those episodes centered around the cause. Why is this happening? Well, for this one... We have a really good idea of why it's happening, and we'll talk about that after this uh, jarringly upbeat in- intermission music. Just hold on to those scowls a little bit longer. <laughs> As I said, we have a very good idea of what particular threats and changes are causing populations and species in the world today to go extinct. This discussion could go on forever. Yes, it so could. So what I'm going to do is mention a few broad categories, give you some examples, and then move on from there. A rep, Once again, a representative sample of devastation (laughs) you will notice of course that all of these categories have in common their root cause and that is homo sapiens yes um this is undisputably how we're doing and and it's that's a tough pill to swallow but keep in mind that understanding the issue is the very first step in resolving the issue this is important information to know so that we can move forward and this is not us saying humans are evil or are pulling an Agent Smith and saying we are a disease. <laughs> Many people can can feel attacked because often when people bring up this topic, they kind of are attacking. It, it can make... I remember when I first... When this first sunk in for me, when I was younger, when I was mm-hmm. you know, in my youth, I got... I was angry. Yeah. That was my reaction was I am angry and humans are awful and we're just the worst. Yeah. I I... I was in disbelief because before learning about species that we had driven to extinction, the first time I was introduced to stellar sea cow and things like that, my only experience, my only knowledge was related to mass extinctions. So in my mind, an asteroid is what it took or something on that level to devastate the planet. And then when I found out that we potentially were also on that list, I was in disbelief. And I was horrified. Absolutely. And yeah, and that's a reasonable response is, mm-hmm. is to, to be upset. 
Uh, we will talk later on about whether or not this fits in that category. Yes. Of true mass extinction, because that is not a definite. But for now, let's talk about what's happening. Category number one, over-exploitation. Basically, we are hunting and killing things directly and driving them to extinction. Faster than they can make babies. This is one that when I first heard about it as a youth, I didn't really believe it. Yes. Like, how could we possibly kill every individual of, mm-hmm. of a species? And yet, uh, we talked in episode 35 about passenger pigeons. In the 1800s, they, they, had, they flocked in the millions. And then in the late 1800s, hunting and nest disruptions uh, by people drove a huge decline until the very last of the passenger pigeons died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. Her name was Martha. Bye, Martha. Bye, Martha. Why did you say that name? Now, (laughs) passenger pigeons are are notable because it's part of the reason they're thought to have gone extinct. One is that they probably relied on large numbers. Yes. So once they started getting into lower numbers, it was a lost cause for them. And also, notably, there was no effort to rescue passenger pigeons. Mm -hmm. There was no conservation effort, and so they really had very little chance. A similar story happened with great auks, which are seabirds that used to nest all up and down, uh, uh, well, left and right, across the North Atlantic. They used to be hunted for their feathers, their eggs, their meat, their fat, their oil. And as they decreased, laws were passed in in the case of the great auks to protect them, to try to to save them. Uh, But that, of course, made it. Now they were rare and forbidden. Yes. And so uh, we actually have the last to- the last known great auk is a report from July 1844 on an island off of Scotland. And the report comes from the fishermen who killed it. Th- thanks for the news. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. All right. Good stuff. One of the most emblematic examples of overhunting, uh, especially over here in, in our section of the world, are American bison. Indeed. In the 1500s, it is estimated that there were 30 to 60 million bison in North America. As European settlers moved in and spread across the, the continent, and certainly increased pressures from Native Americans on and from Native Americans, over the next few centuries, thousands of hunters would go out per year killing thousands of bison. Yeah. In the 1880s, it, is, it was estimated that there were around 300 wild bison left. Which makes that stampede scene in Oregon Trail a little more depressing. <laughs> 300 down from at least 30 million. Now, today, there are tens of thousands of bison in private and public herds because we have been restoring them. We have been bringing them back. But over just a few centuries... We almost entirely wiped out bison. We see similar declines in things like bluefin tuna are reported to have dropped 97% from Mm -hmm. historic to present uh, because of overfishing. One of our early, early episodes, we talked about a study that showed how oysters and clams have decreased not only in number, but in size as humans have been harvesting them, hunting, fishing, pet trade, is another one where we, we take advantage of, of animal species, and these lead to significant declines. Uh, the clownfish were, threat, were, were not 
pushed to that point, but they were in danger for a short time after Finding Nemo came out. Yep. Because the pet trade exploded and everyone wanted a Nemo. Yeah. And and when there's demand, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, like enter capitalism. Yeah. Like, if I can get access to it, I'm gonna. And if people want it and will pay for it for food or for meat or for pets, whew. The next category of causes actually ties nicely into overexploitation, and it is habitat destruction. This is when we just destroy habitats, clearly. One example is the overexploitation of forests. So I mentioned before the Amazon rainforest has been deforested. Uh, the Amazon rainforest covers a little over 2 million square miles. Five and a half million square kilometers. It is the world's largest rainforest. It's one of the most diverse area parts of the planet as i mentioned before since 1970 20 percent of the amazon rainforest biome has been lost to deforestation mostly for agricultural use yes for farming and such that is 500,000 square miles have been lost in the last 40 years that's 800,000 square kilometers for those of you keeping track in other countries which is Again, these are mind-blowing numbers, but they're, they, we, we are humans. We are legion. There are many yes. of us, and, and we, we are really, really good at getting stuff done. One, and what, a, what may seem like a slow process within your lifetime, when combined over generations, speeds up real, real quick. Yes. Yeah. It, t- it took you, you know, almost your entire life to set up that farm. But for everyone else who also has that story and everyone else's grandfather and grandparents who right. have that story, <laughs> it adds up. Another way that habitats can be destroyed, not from just being lost, but also habitat fragmentation, where you are not necessarily destroying that much habitat, but you're, you're, you're piecing it. So Fragmenting the, it. The example that comes to my mind uh, immediately are the mountain lions in Los Angeles. Yes. So there are all these mountain lions that live across Los Angeles and their territories are now split by highways. Mm -hmm. And there's all these wonderful conservation stories with with those lions and and people raising money to build corridors so that they can go between different sections. But the reason that's a problem is because the lions now have limited space and resources where they live. Mm -hmm. And they can't breed as effectively because they're cut off from most of their species. So you get these little inbred pockets. And we talked in episode eight about the push for habit for, for wildlife corridors and indeed wide expanses of range because some animals really do need that, especially the big ones that we care so much about. A, a quick aside on that, because when, when I've seen that one brought up or when I've mentioned it before, I've seen and heard lots of people who often ask the question or counter, how will the animals know to use the corridors, which I... I think is is a slight misunderstanding of it is not that we're going to build a pathway and teach all the animals to use it, but now at least there is a pathway. Right. They'll incorporate that into their territory, into their range, as they're doing their patrol or whatever around, looking for more food. Yeah. It's that right now, (laughs) there are no options. There's zero ways to get through. If we add even one... (laughs) That is <laughs> that is way better. That is an infinite improvement <laughs> on the current situation. Another form of habitat destruction is called habitat degradation, 
where you're not removing the habitat, but you're just making it worse. Yes. Uh, and the example that I'll go to for this are mangroves. Mm-hmm. Mangroves are coastal forests that are usually found in estuaries and in lagoons. Uh, they're common in the tropics and subtropics. They're really cool. So this is... No, a f- I love mangroves. This is a forest that lives in the tidal area of the coast, and that the trees have these cool roots that grow underground. Uh, I'm sorry, under the... Wa- well, underground, yes, but under the water <laughs> level. Uh, they're home to tons of you know, fish and, and bugs and all sorts of cool, diverse ecosystems. They maintain island stability and can even form islands as they stabilize shallow areas it's awesome yeah super cool uh well uh mangroves are lost to cl- you know mangroves are cleared like the rainforests are they're exploited they're harvested but another thing that that really affects mangroves uh, extensively is pollution so mangroves just by nature of how they're constructed and where they sit tend to accumulate pollutants they're also sometimes mm-hmm. used as waste dumping grounds yes chemicals and metals and and runoff of silt and soils and things from the land can get into mangrove ecosystems they can deplete oxygen levels they can smother the roots of the plants Uh, chemicals can interfere with fertilization of animals and breeding of animals so you get all these things entering the ecosystem that aren't supposed to be there and the trees struggle, and the fish struggle, and different animals start to have a harder time surviving in those ecosystems. Yeah, it's very much like in- ingesting too much of a certain, you know, chemical in your food, or or you know, breathing in poor air quality. It's just over time, it's not may not just wipe you out immediately, but over time, it takes its toll. Yes, and as you all know, because most of our listeners have presumably been to school at, at <laughs> any point and talked about ecosystems. Uh, if, if the plants are struggling, everyone's struggling. Yes. So you don't have to hurt every species to hurt every species. <laughs> One of the categories that I, th- I feel like is less obvious. Deforestation, yes. Overhunting, yes. But one of the most devastating things that we do is bringing species to places they don't belong. Yep invasive species are responsible for ridiculous amounts of biodiversity loss especially on islands yeah it, it it's it's a common topic of talk here in florida yep where just any tropical animal that makes landfall here fits basically right in yep and just starts taking over and on islands it's very common for rats and cats and goats and other species like that to end up being brought to an island that has no defenses against them yeah Uh, we talked in episode four about islands we talked in episode eight about conservation paleontology and how Mm -hmm. island you know they're these little secluded worlds and you throw one little wrench in there and that whole sort of delicately balanced ecosystem starts to fall apart thousands of species have gone extinct on islands as humans have arrived at islands over the last several centuries. And a lot of that is because we brought cats and we brought competition and we brought little predators. Um, The Galapagos conservation website estimate the uh, reports that there are estimated to be 1700 invasive species in the Galapagos. Wow. Because we there, it's it's small animals and it's plants and they're just hitchhiking rides with us around the world. 
And remember, folks, spay and neuter your pets. Cats are one of the worst invasive species on the planet. Please keep your cats inside. My goodness, they're terrible for the environment. I love my cat, but she does not go outside because that's where nature is. And nature is bad for her, and she is bad for nature. Indeed. Uh, Cane toads are famous for this. Uh, Famously introduced into Australia, where they proceeded to eat other species, poison predators, and outcompete their competitors, and just cause all sorts of awful circumstances. Just so everyone knows, they're also here in the U.S. Oh, they're They're everywhere. in Florida. They're all over the place. It's famous in Australia? Yeah, they're here too. This is another uh, category that is affected by the pet trade. Red-eared sliders Yep, are super common pet turtles, and they are now all over the planet messing with pond ecosystems. Um, the Burmese python. Yep. Invasive species can also be invasive diseases. Uh, here in the Americas, one of the most famous examples of this is the American chestnut. Yes. Uh, historically, a couple centuries ago, this was one of the dominant tree species in the eastern United States. Super important commercially. It was a critical source of wood, of lumber, of resource, right, resources that our economy used. And then in the late 1800s, a fungus was brought over from Asia that caused chestnut blight. Yep. And by the mid-1900s, we had lost almost all of our American chestnuts. Nowadays, you are hard-pressed to find any American chestnuts. It's, it's the bison all over again. Yes. There were billions of them, and now they're almost gone. Came over with the Asian chestnut, which came here because it looked pretty. Yep. <laughs> sort of a pet trade. Yeah. Sort of pet I mean, trade. It was an aesthetic choice. And there are lots of examples. You, you pick these plants because they look pretty. <laughs> you picked them because they look good, but these are, these are aggressive... Uh, living things that will defend themselves. <gasps> the last category, the last major category that I want to talk about is the uh, all of the elephants in the room, and that is climate change. Yes. Uh, and yeah, we don't we don't actually talk a ton about climate change on the podcast. We usually, we sort of mention it offhanded a lot. Yeah, we kind of we mention it as an, uh, an assumed situation. So let's let's be explicit. It is indisputable from our evidence that the world today is warming at a nearly unprecedented pace, that this warming is causing all sorts of impacts on climate and weather and ecosystems around the world, and that it is largely to entirely our fault. This is something that we are doing. This is That is not up for discussion in this conversation yeah. here. We will post uh, resources on the blog, as always, and you can follow those if you want more details on climate change. But cl- human-caused climate change is an enormous threat. And the example of biome that I'm going to use to demonstrate this are coral reefs. Indeed. Uh, we did talk about this a bunch in episode 36, so I'll go through it quickly. But the short is, what we've been doing is pumping tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide Uh, in the atmosphere has two effects. One is that it is a greenhouse gas and it raises temperatures. The other is that it seeps into the oceans and it raises the carbon dioxide levels in the oceans. Raising temperatures causes bleaching. Will, you work in an aquarium. Indeed. What's bleaching? So inside of a coral, most corals, 
is a type of algae called zooxanthellae. This is the thing that gives coral its color and what al- the thing that allows coral to photosynthesize whilst in the sun. When the water increases in temperature and coral can only survive about two degrees change from their ideal uh, temperature levels, once it increases, the zooxanthellae is expelled from the al- from the coral. Yeah, it abandoned it ship. And if reintroduced, the coral can uh, recover. But during that time, the coral loses all its color. Its transparent skin can now give way and you can see through to the white skeleton, which is why it's called bleaching. Mm-hmm. And if remaining this way, the coral will starve to death because it gets a huge portion of its nutrition from photosynthesis. In the most of the 1900s, it's estimated that major bleaching events were probably happening once every 25 to 30 years. These days, these last uh, couple decades, major bleaching events appear to be happening once roughly every six years. Yeah. There have been three global bleaching events in the last couple of decades, from 1998, 2002, and 2016. During the 2016 global bleaching event, the Great Barrier Reef, which is the Amazon rainforest of the oceans, lost 30% of its corals. Yeah, it is something that can happen startlingly quickly. One reef that the people at the aquarium monitored from a single, between two checkups within a single year, they checked on it every year, between those two checkups completely bleached. One little section. So it, it is not slow. And like Will said, corals can, re, you know, reefs can rebound, right? Bleaching is a thing that Indeed. happens. But we're at a point now where we're starting to see these major events every few years. And we're not, warming's not slowing down anytime soon. Yes. If the temperature doesn't come back down to the ideal range, there's no way to reverse that right away. And there, as it gets warmer, it's just going to get worse. And the, the issue is that it's going to be happening more frequently than the reefs can rebound. Mm-hmm. The other effect of climate change on the, on the oceans is that increased amount of CO2 in the water is creating ocean acidification. Indeed. CO2 in the ocean causes carbonic, creates carbonic acid. Mm-hmm. Which not only eats away at shelled animals, clams and, and snails and stuff, it eats away at their shells. It also reduces the amount of carbonate ions available to be built into skeletons. So corals, and then there have been studies on this. Studies have shown that the higher the level of CO2 in the, in the, in the water, the worse corals grow. Yeah, it basically halts the chemical cycle that naturally would provide the building materials for coral skeletons. There was a, a study that was referenced in Colbert's book that where people were looking at ecosystems around volcanic vents that mm-hmm. release CO2 into the water. And they found that the closer you got to the vent, the fewer species there were of calcifying organisms, of snails and corals and clams and stuff. Just stop relying on that. Because they can't go in there. They can't survive Mm -hmm. there because it dissolves away the shells. That And they were looking at it specifically as a... They were saying from far to near the vent, the changes in ecosystems we see as you get closer to the vent is a proxy for what we should expect to see as global temperatures get warmer. Indeed. And one of the big sort of 
major points about all of these different impacts that we're having is that they overlap and they compound. Yes. So when you deforest an ecosystem, that leaves the soil unstable and erosion takes the soil away and it runs it down into the coast where the soil now smothers plants and, and reduces photosynthesis and stress from higher temperatures can leave species more vulnerable to invasives. And mm -hmm. as we mentioned, when you have a few species in your ecosystem that are struggling, it's going to ripple out. What's that phrase you like so much? Trophic cascade. Yes, you remove your herbivores and your predators suffer. You remove yes. your plants and your herbivores suffer. You remove your, your carnivores and your herbivores do really, really well, and then they deplete all the plants, and then all the herbivores do poorly because the plants are depleted. It's the, the workplace mentality of if the boss isn't happy, nobody's happy. Yes. <laughs> it's 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 trickle-down extinction. Yes. <laughs> on that note, on the note of vulnerability, another really disturbing trend that has popped up in the last couple of decades is global diseases. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that snake fungal disease w was first noted in 2006 in the wild population of rattlesnakes in New Hampshire, I believe. And it has since been spotted in more than 20 states in the U.S. This is a, a fungal disease that causes deformation of the skin, which can interfere with snakes shedding. Uh, it can disfigure them. It can cloud their eyes uh, and indeed can be uh, can either cause death or interrupt their life enough that they have trouble finding food and shelter. Uh, if you are here in the United States, you have no doubt heard of white nose. Yeah, white nose syndrome is another fungal disease that what, again, this number I did not realize this. White nose was first spotted in wild bats in 2007. Yeah. And in the in the previous 12 years it has killed millions of bats. Like entire caves. Entire caves. Caves have been shut off. So yes. there are caves all up and down the 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 the, 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 the Appalachians here, the mountains. The Tennesseans would be very angry at me. Uh, none of them can hear. I, say, I call them the Appalachians. And it, it, it interrupts their hibernation cycle, and then they die. It makes them leave. It makes them misjudge the timing, and they'll leave mid-hibernation out into the winter and just freeze or be so low energy they starve. And it's, yeah, tragic. Yeah, the caves all, all around the country have been closed off for fear that people are going to accidentally introduce white nose. Because it was spread by spelunkers. Yes. Yeah. And it, which is... Contaminated gear. And that's so... Almost all of these things that we're pointing out are complete accidents. Yeah. It's not like we're going and saying, well, I'm going to, you know, burn the corals out of the oceans. This is just side effects of us being human. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't mention fungal diseases without talking about chytridiomycosis. Just for a second. <laughs> this is a, a now infamous fungus named Betrachochytrium dendrobotitis. It is a fungus that infects amphibians, and it is one of the most terrifying diseases. This is this is a disease that was it, it defor again causes deformities in the skin, which for amphibians is a huge problem because that's what they use to breathe and to to absorb water. You know how most of us learned whenever we got to, like they brought a frog to class that you had to wash your hands before touching them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's because of their skin. <laughs> Chytridiomycosis can cause rapid mass mortality. In amphibians, it was first discovered in 1999 and has now been found 
in just about every region of the world that has amphibians. It is devastating. And now, obviously, these fungi are not our fault. We did not engineer fungi to to destroy all these species. But it's probably not a coincidence that at the same time ecosystems are, populations are declining and uh, ranges are decreasing and temperatures are causing problems that these disease, these opportunistic diseases are taking advantage of these vulnerable states. Well, that's, that's something we touch on at the aquarium when it comes to the, the animals. Is we, we have touch pools and we put them on regular breaks and people often ask, why do they need to go on a break? And I'll say it's, you know, to monitor stress levels so that they, you know, aren't getting touched nonstop and get stressed out. And very often people are kind of like, oh, well, like, why, why does that matter? Is it because they will bite us? To which I say, no, I'm not worried about you. <laughs> <I'm> worried. <laughs> this isn't about and you, Phil. I tell people that all the time when they're like, oh, is that because they'll hurt us? I go, no, these rules are not for you. These are rules are to protect <laughs> them. <laughs> all of our rules at the touch pools, every single one is to protect the animal. Yeah. And... It is because stress has a marked effect on your physical health. This is why when you're stressed at work and that cold comes through, you're more likely to get it. Yep. It has. This has been found time and time again. Stress has physical effects. Yes. So just having a more stressful day-to-day life can make you more susceptible. And if you're not eating right and if yes. you're not sleeping right and if you're having trouble, you know, if, if, if you're having fewer babies it, each one of them is now at yeah. risk you, yeah, more than usual each one that gets hit is a higher percentage so all of these impacts compound on each other as mm-hmm. i've said before the way that you i said i say this and i think all the mass extinction episodes you don't create a global extinction event by dropping the roof on the ecosystem you do it by pulling the rug out absolutely you shake the foundation you weaken everything and then it crumbles. All of these things, obviously there's huge impacts. Obviously we're losing lots of not only species, not only populations, but biome area, uh, places that are homes to, to, to different species. Lots of it is getting worse. Mm-hmm. It's not all doom and gloom. There are conservation efforts. Now we return to this question. <laughs> With all of this in mind, is this a mass extinction? Does it, does it measure up? Does it measure up? We know that there's lots of extinction. We know that it's happening fast, really fast, perhaps uh, as fast or faster than in some previous mass extinctions. But previous mass extinctions were not measured over a couple hundred years. Previous mass extinctions were extended over thousands and hundreds of thousands and sometimes even maybe a couple million years. Some people argue that it is improper to call what we're going through a mass extinction, at least in regard to the big five. Uh, Doug Irwin was uh, was interviewed for this really extensive piece in The Atlantic, which we'll post in the blog, and he argues that we are definitely not in a mass extinction, like a big five-level mass extinction, not because things aren't bad, but because mass extinctions are real bad. Yeah. His argument is that Mass extinctions, it is like right now we've maybe lost a couple percent of species. Mm-hmm. This We're not talking 70%. We're not talking. If a mass extinction is a point of no return, 
Yeah. Course, he argues a mass extinction. If we are, if there is a mass extinction like that happening now, what's the point of anything? <laughs> because that's insane. He makes the point, uh, or at least the point is made in the article that what we've experienced so far probably wouldn't even show up very well in the fossil record. Yeah. In a distant future. Because we are taking a microscope view to it because it's happening in the now. Right. And, you know, a lot of our big animals are still around. A lot of our diversity is still here. However, he does suggest, as do many, many other scientists, that even if we're not seeing a proper mass extinction now, we're certainly taking the right steps to get to one. Yes. That this is not to de diminish what is happening now. And, and to point out that it's bad now, and if it keeps getting worse, then absolutely we could end up in a similar situation. And what I think is interesting to point out is that even if we are not at a KPG-level extinction, which clearly we are not yes. close to that at the moment, there are a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. Not only the high extinction rate, but also all of the three extinction, big five extinction events that we've discussed on the podcast— and indeed, both of the other two as well, are associated with rapid climate change. Indeed. Many of the big five mass extinctions are associated with changing ocean chemistry, with, change, with, with, with decreases in reef systems and decreases mm -hmm. in the biodiversity of oceans. Many of those extinctions are associated with loss of habitat. And many of them are associated with the meeting of different factors. The KPG extinction, an asteroid hit at a time where sea levels were rapidly changing and volcanic activity was at this was, was happening at extensive levels. And there's evidence that ecosystems were kind of reshuffling in the lead up to that, that you have multiple factors coming together to contribute to this. Our current situation, this diversity crisis has a lot in common with previous extinction events. It's and we once again we've said this in previous ones, but it's it's when events sync up, and this may just be revealing how crazy I am. But the metaphor that came to mind <laughs> is if anyone else, when you're sitting in a turn lane and your blinker's going and the blinker in front of you is going, does anyone else watch for when they sync up? Yes. Yep. <laughs> and it's a it's a cycle. They're out of sync, out of sync, closer in sync, closer in sync, in sync, in sync, out of sync, out of sync, right. farther and farther. It's stuff like that. It's not that it, there's necessarily a regular cycle, but these things are all happening all over. And when they all happen at the same time, it's just system failure. Yes. You know, if you open up every program on your computer all at once, your computer can run any of those, but all of them? No. No, that's problems. Now, the fact that this has so much in common with previous extinctions mean is A terrifying yes that's <laughs> really unnerving also means that we have case studies it we means do. that we and episode eight was all about this conservation paleontology how do we use the fossil record to understand extinctions and conservation we can we have case studies we can say hey this is what has happened in the past this is what we can expect now these are ways we can mitigate it yeah we have a chance to learn from history so as not to repeat it one of the ways that scientists have proposed accentuating this is by designating a specific, unique geologic time period. And I want to mm -hmm. make mention of the Anthropocene. So 
the Cenozoic era is full of epochs, epics. The Paleocene, the Eocene, the Ligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, and we are currently in the Holocene. But in 2000, a scientist named Paul Crutzen suggested, proposed, popularized the notion that we could call our current time frame a different name. Mm-hmm. Because in the fossil record, a lot of the divisions between time periods are associated with major changes. Changes in climate, changes in sea level, changes in diversity. Right? The KPG boundary, there's dinosaurs on this end and there's not over here. And this there's a change in species, there's a change in sea level. There's that wonderful little sediment boundary that is mm-hmm. the impact layer. So some scientists favor picking a time and saying, we have caused a new geologic division. Which, impressive, if not something to be proud of. Yeah, so look at us <laughs> changing the world. <laughs> now, Who else can say? There is a 2009, uh, established in 2009, an Anthropocene working group to evaluate this. And there's been lots of discussion among scientists as to whether or not we should do it. And also, if we did, where would it go? Some have proposed, because you're looking for a signature in the rocks that somewhere in the future, someone can look and say, there's the signature. That's that's the boundary. (laughs) These are when those darn humans showed up. This is when it all (laughs) went bad. And this radioactive line is when they went away. Uh. (laughs) So funnily enough, uh, some have points have argued that 1950 should be the cutoff because that is when you start seeing clear radiometric signatures from atomic weapons. Um, It's also when you start seeing major increases in greenhouse gases. Others have pointed to 1800 at the top, around the time, the start of the industrial revolution. Some Mm -hmm. have suggested around 1500 when Europeans started invading everywhere and introducing new species. Others have said that really, if we want to name an Anthropocene, it should be back around the dawn of agriculture. When we started yeah. clearing space and and breeding, you know, uh, uh, introducing inv- uh, domesticated species, episode twenty seven. Yeah, when we started actually actively shaping ecosystems. Others have said that it should just be the Holocene. That it just rename it. This interglacial, which we are calling the Holocene now, should just be the Anthropocene. Others have argued that we shouldn't name it officially. We should keep it informal. You know, use it as a a meaningful term that doesn't necessarily have a boundary. And then other people don't like this idea. Some scientists have said that there's no good boundary. Uh, Some have said that there's no point in doing this. Uh, One quote that I read in one of the discussions about it was someone saying, we're trying to find a boundary that would be useful to people millions of years in the future, but we're not making this time scale for people millions of years in the future we're making it for us so why mess around with names the the only purpose of this is to be sort of and this is another argument the only purpose of this word is to deliver a message is to be sort of uh, pithy is to to make headlines to which supporters of the anthropocene respond well yeah yeah that is exactly the point of it Say so, yes, I thought we were all on the same page on that. Yes, like, <laughs> yes, we, we want to do it because we want to drive this home. Like, the, if we can scientifically justify calling this a new age on a geologic timescale, that really goes a long way towards getting this idea across that, hey, everybody, we're we're doing some, some terrible stuff here. Mm-hmm. 
as of now, the Anthropocene is not official. Uh, there's still discussions about it. The 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 international I forget it, but the geologic people have not officially designated this. Although it's being used a lot, hundreds yeah. of scientific studies have now used the phrase Anthropocene officially, uh, not as a, in with a defined way, but just to say the now times. Yeah. Uh, the this this post-apocalyptic future we're living in <laughs> now. This episode has been very doom and gloom. This is very sad. And, and and it's it's a difficult topic to discuss because it really is difficult to talk about these things without feeling very upset and very depressed by it. Defeated. And defeated. And it's a, you know, th- there have been reports of, especially scientists, mm-hmm. like I've seen a few articles now. What is it like to, for your, the thing you study to be rapidly going extinct. Yeah. What is it like to be a climate scientist now? What is it like to study reefs? Mm-hmm. And it's it's really stressful and it's really anxiety inducing. And so we don't want to leave the episode on that note. Cuz I've I've known people who have who have taken that defeatist mindset to the extreme of saying we should just start looking at space colonization. Right. They say, oh, well, what's the point? Let's just, yeah, yeah, who cares? Like, we should call it quits. And we don't want to settle on that mindset. And that is, first of all, that is not an option currently. No, that is a silly concept for movies. Yeah, that's, (laughs) listen, we have a planet, and it's, this planet in its current state is way better than Mars. We we are living on 100% of the planets that we know of that can sustain life. <laughs> yes, we, so. ca- we got it. We're, we've capitalized. <laughs> so we would be remiss, I think, uh, without discussing why this is important and what we can do. Indeed. Now, the question of why it's important, it, it real quickly answered, number one, because it sucks. Yes. It sucks that we're killing species and that things are going extinct and that it's our fault, and it is definitely it bums our me out. fault. It bums us out, and that is a legitimate reason. It sucks. We're that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> there, there is sort of this that there, there's a familial imperative mm-hmm. uh, that you might feel to say we should be protecting our fellow species. Um, religions, a number of religions, command the, their followers to be stewards of the earth. Like, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of cultural reasons to to be unhappy that this is happening well and that the the one that has always gotten to me is that you know you can excuse even though you should eradicate an invasive species for causing chaos because it does not know better yes you know a lionfish is going to hunt wherever a lionfish is and though we were once that way we no longer are we know what we're doing we know better, we know and better. we should know better, and we should behave as such. Yes, and now we're and now we're parents. Listen, humanity. Yes. That's what yes. we've we've transcended from being angry in our youth. Now we're not angry; we're just disappointed. Yep. <laughs> but beyond that, beyond sort of the emotional response, biodiversity is important. It really is. It biodiversity is essential for healthy eco- uh, ecosystems, and healthy ecosystems provide us with resources. Like food and medicinal uh, uh, resources, building resources, right? The like wood and uh, all sorts of stuff. Breathing resources. Breathing resources. <laughs> um, I've seen a number of sources estimate that services provided by ecosystems are worth, economically speaking, trillions of dollars. 
Yep. A loss of biodiversity is bad for human health, and it's bad for human economy. Like, yep. that's a lot of supplies that we're going to run out of, and that's bad. That, I mean, that's one of the things we emphasize with the, the coral situation is the, the number you'll have to see is about roughly half of the breathable air, the breathable oxygen we get is pr- produced by uh, oceanic plant and algae. Yep, that sounds about right. I, I accept it. I'm going to allow this. Depleting the corals is going to deplete that portion of that 50%. Not to mention the rainforests. Yeah, but that's ignoring (laughs) the effects we're doing above water, too. So, and this is something that I think is important, and it gets lost. You know, Mm -hmm. we we should be invested because we are part of this world. Sometimes you'll hear people talking about saving the planet. I'm I'm paraphrasing a George Carlin bit here. But we're not worried that the planet's going away. No. We're worried that we're going away. The yes. planet's going to be fine. The pl- like Life will uh, find a way. Like Life yep. has rebounded before. We are, I, I, I think we are a long ways off from eradicating life and destroying the Earth. But we are certainly capable of creating a circumstance in which it is difficult for us to continue surviving. Now... Not all is lost. This has been a very depressing episode, and I want to I want to ex- ex- accentuate. I want to make clear that what's happening now is bad. It's yes. real bad, everybody. Like this is a bad time. However, the world is full of millions of people working real hard to help, and they're doing a great job. There are conservation efforts all over the world to protect and to research new avenues for us to understand and to help uh, conserve wildlife. Governments all over the world are more and more, more now than ever before, passing laws uh, to encourage sustainable practices, to protect wildlife, to establish uh, conserved areas, hundreds what is it like 200 countries or something agreed to the paris climate yeah. accords mm-hmm. like that's just the fact that the leaders of all of those countries got together in a room to say hey let's do some things about this environmental situation that's huge that's amazing and that is extremely good that is yes. extremely good conservation efforts all around the world are on the rise the amount of protected areas for, cons- for for wildlife are on the rise. Public awareness of the mm-hmm. issues is on the rise. And all of those things are extremely good. We are moving in the right direction, even while we are also moving in the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, we, we are literally trying to fight the tide in many a case, but we are. And in some places it's working, right? The bison, we restored bison. Those uh, mm-hmm. uh, crocodilians you mentioned before. Indeed, yeah. When we put our minds to it, we can do it. We can restore yes. ecosystems. We can preserve species. We can figure out what, how to cut it off at the pass. We can, we can get ahead of the issue. These are things we are able to do. These are Life things that resilient. we're doing. And, and we can do it. We have this power. We have the great power. Yeah. I think it's important to note that uh, I think for a long time there was this notion that we would fix it by going back. Yes. We just put it back. Oh, just put it mm-hmm. back the way it was. Replant the forest, 
reintroduce the species, de-extinct the, the, the species that have been lost. And I think that it's very important to make clear that that is not an option. No. And I don't just mean de-extinction, which is not really an option. Listen to episode 35. I mean you can't go back. You can't put back a forest that is lost. You can't put back a reef that is lost. You you can encourage new ecosystems, healthy ecosystems to develop. You can't remove those invasive species. You can't pull all of the plastic out of the ocean we do not know how to do that you can't pull the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and out of the oceans we do not have a way to do that what we can do is understand how healthy ecosystems function and step one stop what we're doing step one stop polluting and stop deforesting and stop emitting carbon dioxide like crazy and step two help ecosystems around the world to return to a healthy state. We will never get back the ecosystems of the 1800s. That can't happen. But we can restore them to a healthy level that they have been in the past. Yeah, it's and we mentioned this in the conservation paleontology episode that oftentimes conservation is is focused on a now outdated view of how it should be or a uh, static view of how it should be that the the way it was is the way it should remain and right. stay and that's not how ecosystems work anyway no but it's also not feasible also because it, even if you are an environmentalist to your core there is no reason why you should expect or think or hope that you can then go and drive all the people out right or the businesses out of existence or the new ecosystem that's moved in yeah that's just not how it works no. we we are still animals and if you come at me and say hey i'm going to take your livelihood living space and way of life away anyone would fight you on that yes. any human oh yeah and they do and this is and this is one of the big reasons that people get so up in arms about climate change discussions i've seen people get really defensive because they perceive, you know, I, I we were at a, I don't remember if you were there for this, but this was at the museum years ago. Yeah, yeah, we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a talk about climate change, and this guy stood up, and we're in Tennessee. Uh, this is coal country, yep. right? Uh, this part of the country. And this guy said, my family has been in the fossil fuel business for generations, and you're telling me that fossil fuels are evil and terrible, and we should stop all of them. And he was very defensive about it, and that's totally understandable. Like yes. if you and now granted that's not what the presenter was saying. Right? We're not saying fossil fuels are evil. We're saying no. that that those were great. Like they did their job wonderfully. Mm-hmm. But we need to start moving away from them and as quickly as possible. But to absolutely, if you're telling people we're going to prioritize the environment over you, well, yeah, demonizing even if it is a legitimate, proven cause of the the situations we just discussed demonizing it is attacking their way of life it's the yes. same as attacking their beliefs or ideologies we we need to figure out ways to work together yes and that is for me i think the scariest part of it and this will go into this this question uh that i want to end the episode on and that is what can you do yeah 
right? You have sit, you have listened to this overly long podcast episode. You are quaking in your boots because we just told you that everything is terrible. <laughs> what, how, what do you do? What do you do? What yeah. can you, a little speck on a blue dot in the universe, do? I think that the scariest thing uh, for me is that the effort needed to to mitigate this issue, that they, the effort needed to start making real change is a global effort. Yes. Arguably a level of global cooperation that does not tend to happen. We no. are not good at this. And I think that the way that it changes is to change our global mindset. And for that reason, I think that one of the most important things you can do is just start doing all those little green living things. Yeah. Recycle and choose sustainable foods and look for eco labels that that mark which foods are are sustainably managed and purchase those, right? Use your purchasing power as a consumer to say these are the things that I want. Vote with your dollar. Avoid single-use plastics. Don't litter. Yeah, I, like my, my aquarium friends would would shun me if I did not make mention of say no to the straw. Don't get a straw. Just tell them I I when I go fast food like and I go to yeah. fast food so it's not like I'm doing everything I possibly can. I'm still eating fast food. Yes. But you know when I go to a restaurant I'm like don't give me a straw. I mm-hmm. don't need it. I will I will make do without it and that's one less straw in the world to to Absolutely. be thrown away somewhere. Those things seem so little, and I, it, it's it's so overwhelming to think about all the issues that are happening in the world and say, "Wow, what? How? You know, my the three straws I didn't get. Mm-hmm. You know, what what am I doing?" But that I think the the biggest benefit of those things is that it normalizes that behavior. Absolutely, you're getting yourself in that mindset. And you're, it's infectious, and your friends are going to get it, and your family, and your children, and your students. Like, make those habits, make it a habit of considering your individual impact on the ecosystem. Uh, pick a few of them. Like I said, I, I, I'm reducing it. It's not like I've gone completely vegetarian, and it's not like I, you know, I yeah. I've cut. I don't drive. I, I, you do what you can, and you, yes, you. But getting yourself in that mindset, and then showing other people how easy it can be the we will need to be a culture of ecologically minded people in order to make and, this change and it starts at that level and oftentimes it's it's i've seen articles written about it of if not naysayers people who are kind of voicing trying to be a voice of reason in in the fact that no saying no to the straw will not save the sea turtles that's not how it works right you saying no to the straw is not going to rebound the species us as individuals recycling is not going to save the planet but how else is change to happen because the only other option is (laughs) the thanos option of some (laughs) all-powerful decision maker coming down and saying you are now going to be environmentally friendly by force right which also is unrealistic and wouldn't work no. because people don't respond to that well. <laughs> Which brings me to another thing you could do. Well, two more things that I wanted to mention. One is to learn and share. Yes. Communicate. Raising awareness. Raise awareness. My goodness, that's so important. That's why we made a podcast. To, Absolutely. To communicate, to raise awareness of things. Listen to 
podcasts, watch documentaries, follow scientists on Twitter and stuff. Like, read books, make yourself aware, and then share what you're learning. Yes. Normalize that awareness. And then, like Will was just saying, um, a mandate from above would not work. We know that because th- half of this country is super pissed about a lot of ecolo- you know, yes. greens because it, the government says this now. And because one rule does not work for everyone. You know, you can only mm-hmm. do it this way might work over here, but be way more difficult over here. The way to do it is the other direction. Yes. Uh, here in the United States, we have a very, uh, the, the, the 2020 campaign cycle is kicking off. Mm-hmm. Potentially voting in a new president or keeping our old president here in the next couple of years. Use that voice. You know, yeah. you don't have to be an activist, but vote, vote for ecologically friendly things. If this is an issue that concerns you, if you're worried about climate change, if you're worried about the biodiversity crisis, vote in your local elections, vote in big deal elections for the, the, the people and the campaigns that are going to prioritize those. Because again, it's a, it's a cultural mindset. And if we can get, if we can make it clear that these are things that we as a culture are concerned about, then the people in power will, that's how we communicate that to them. I, I was going to say the people in power will have no choice but to, which isn't, I guess, technically true. Yeah. Eventually there's a coup or something. But yes. yeah, the, the, I, you know, we work it from the ground up. Let the people, you do not have the power to make that change, but you do have the power to let the people who do have that power know what they need to do. Because ultimately, policy change is what is it and in the past this is almost always been the case is what was finally required to truly you know bring things back around to a positive yes and it works yes the american alligator started to rebound not just because people started reducing what they were doing and started having alligator farms but because hunting just willy-nilly was made illegal and a hunting season was established and once that was put in place, the animals were able to bounce back. We will put all sorts of links in our uh, blog post so you can continue to explore. This is a huge topic. Uh, we have not covered it nearly well enough. <laughs> um, take, uh, make the effort a- as much as you'd like to keep exploring. Uh, keep exploring other, other avenues of information. I want to leave this discussion with a quote from possibly uh, top tier, both science communication and environmentalist, uh, one Sir David Attenborough. (laughs) In April, uh, this past April, talking to a group of conservationists at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. This was a big meeting they had of conservationists to have a big panel discussion. And David Attenborough was there in his his final speech to them. I've I've picked bits and pieces here and I've put them together uh, and I will read them. And then in the blog post, we will link to this full thing and you can watch his his speech. So I'm not going to try to do a David Attenborough impression because I want these words to be meaningful and I don't want to Ring true. diminish them with a with a bad old man <laughs> British accent. Uh, so imagine, if you will, these these words uh, in the voice of David Attenborough from April. Sultry tones. The problems are enormous and they're also varied and there is no single solution. Every country Every community will have their own problems and their own solutions. Looking back, though, the past 75 years of his experience, 
Of course, there have been no simple solutions produced over those years, and of course, the problems have increased beyond imagination. But while there are people like you putting your heads together, people like you getting together and spending time together, it does seem to me, as an onlooker, that the world has a cause for optimism and a cause for gratitude. The problems are indeed increasing, but the solutions are there. If David Attenborough is optimistic and believes we can do it, believes you can do it, well, who are we to argue with David Attenborough? Yeah. Listeners, thank you very much for joining us on this insane Melancholy. episode. It's been it's it's been crazy. Check out the blog post, all sorts of links. It's just going to be all blue. It's going to be all links this this episode. <laughs> um, thank you to our patrons for supporting us. Thank you to the people who suggested the episode. Thank you to you for listening. The next episode will come out in a fortnight, and it will be a distinctly uh, more upbeat topic, <laughs> we promise. <laughs> Until then, uh, don't lose hope. Things that we, we can do it. We can do it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you next time. So long, partners. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.